Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church and our Bible class this evening. Bible class this evening will be in Deuteronomy 3. And um, I think we'll be able to make uh, excellent progress uh, in the in that chapter. Uh, it's historical, and uh, Moses even speaks of himself and the request he makes of God. So let's take a few seconds uh, for spiritual preparation as we begin this chapter, or not begin it, but continue this chapter. And as we uh, understand uh, the truth that's being taught and how it can be applied to our lives. Therefore, uh, let's close our eyes, bow our heads, and then in a few seconds, I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the Word of God. And tonight, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 3. We're thankful for God the Holy Spirit's inspired uh, text that's before us. And we're thankful that uh, Moses, who wrote five books of the Bible has provided for us a, a review, or we could even say an opportunity to teach the second generation of Israelites who departed from Egypt. As we study these chapters, these verses, these paragraphs, we pray, Father, that we'll understand uh, the reason that they have been preserved for us. We also, Father, are thankful that we have the freedom in the United States to not only uh, possess a Bible, study the Word, uh, speak to others about our faith, but gather together in churches where we may, um, we may study and encourage each and other each another in the uh, the Word of God. So we ask for your blessing upon our uh, study this evening. We pray, Father, uh, for our nation as well. We pray for uh, that the nation as a whole will understand the truths that we have from the Word of God as it supports and is the foundation for this nation, and we pray that we would uh, uh, that those of us who are committed to the Word of God and to the foundation upon which this nation is built, which is the Word of God, we pray, Father, that we would not be hesitant to speak to others about you, your sons provision for us on the cross, our redemption, and the necessity for us to continue to devote ourselves to our nation as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this evening, I wanted to 
remember uh, one event that uh, the anniversary of was this uh, week. Um, on today's the 26th. On the 25th of May in 1786, um, we had, or actually 87, uh, we had uh, a constitutional convention. And it began in May, began in May, uh, the 25th, and then was concluded in September. But uh, wall builders sent a uh, uh, several par- uh, paragraphs to describe what was occurring and some of the um, events that occurred then. Uh, this is David Barton's uh, wall builders um, organization. And uh, he's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he also is a remarkable historian. He says, regarding the Constitutional Convention, before the Constitution, the Constitution that we have today, America's national government operated under the Articles of Confederation, which was a flawed document. It went through numerous attempted fixes, but none of them were successful. In September of 1786, Delegates from five states met in Annapolis, in the Annapolis uh, Convention as part of these efforts. At the end of the convention, they called for a meeting of all states. This meeting, which would become known as the Constitutional Convention, officially began, uh, began on May the 25th, 1787. Uh, a day ago. The first several weeks of the convention were frustrating as the delegates locked, uh, deadlocked over many issues. At the height of this impasse, Frank, uh, Benjamin Franklin made his famous appeal for prayer. He had remembered the original uh, conventional uh, uh, constitutional conventions as the nation was beginning. And his appeal was this. In this situation of this assembly, groping, as it were, in the dark to find political truth and scarcely able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbling apply uh, humbly applying ourselves to the father of lights to illuminate our understanding now benjamin franklin in order to use this these words and these phrase would have to be very familiar with the word of god the father of lights to illuminate our understanding i therefore beg to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. The the delegates took three days uh, recess, uh, recess, and George Washington, president of the Constitutional Convention, 
noted that he attended church uh, in his uh, memoirs. He attended church, and during this time, Reverend William Rogers gave a lengthy prayer for the convention, requesting God favor, favor them, the convention delegates, from day to day with thy thy immediate presence. Be thou their wisdom and their strength. Enable them to devise such measures as may prove happily instrumental for healing all divisions and promoting the good of the great whole. After this recess, many positive compromises were reached, and the Constitution was approved on September 17, uh, 17th and sent to the states for ratification. The American government, established under the Constitution, has been the most successful in the world, having seen America safely through both turmoil and prosperity. Today, David Barton says, let us thank God that he blessed the efforts that began on this day, May the 25th, 234 years ago. The gentleman who is very often uh, given the title of the father of the Constitution, James Madison, said, It is impossible for the man of pious reflection not to perceive in it the convention, the finger of the almighty hand, which has been so frequently and signally extended to our relief in the critical stages of this nation and its development. So here we have uh, men who attended these uh, this constitutional convention who were believers, who attended church, who were familiar with the word of God and who understood the finger of the almighty hand, which had so often brought success and prosperity to the nation. Turn to Deuteronomy. Last week, we began chapter 3. We covered the first Deuteronomy 3, first 1 to to 11. And so we're now beginning at verse 12. Verse 12 Let me read 12 through at least through uh, the first 22, or maybe just go to 14. Verse 12, And this land which we possessed at that time from Aror, which is by the river Arnon and half the mountains and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities, I gave to the the Reubenites, and the the Gadites, the rest of Gilead, and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og. I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob, um, with all Bashan, 
which called the uh, which which was called the land of the giants. Jair, the son of Massa, uh, took all the uh, took all the region of Argob, as far as the border of the Gersh, uh, Gershites and the Ma. Alchethites and called Bashan after his own name, Havar Jar, to this day. Now, let me sort of introduce a the context that we have. We'll pick up in verse twelve. This part of the uh, section is known as the dis- uh, the distribution of the uh, conquered land. As a matter of fact, let me get us over to the book of Deuteronomy. We've studied the uh, prologue, um, and then we bring the, re- uh, the review of Israel's history we see the defeat of King Sion, which we saw last week. The defeat of Og, um, well, which which was uh, we also saw last week, three one through eleven. This week we're seeing the distribution of the conquered land, three twelve through twenty two, and Moses forbidden to enter the promised land, uh, chapter three twenty three through twenty nine. After Moses reminds the second generation about God's victories over King Sion of Heshbon and King uh, Og of Bashan, he reviews the assignment, uh, the the assignments of land east of the Jordan River. These assignments were given to Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. The recording and reviewing of these victories and land assignments were important or God the Holy Spirit would not have preserved them. Now, I've just uh, gathered three points for this. There are probably more. But first of all, the first first point is the two kings were powerful, Og and Sion. They were powerful, but God destroyed them with Israel's forces who were not trained, nor were they armed, well armed. God fought for Israel and delivered these two kings into Israel's hands. That's what the text tells us. The victories made a striking impression on the people on the west side of Jordan. In other words, The battles were fought on the east side of the Jordan, but those victories had a significant impact on the, we could call them the uh, state cities on the western side of the Jordan. And so God wanted to ensure that the reputation of God and Israel reached those who were on the west side of Jordan. Secondly, this was a prelude 
for what would transpire west of the Jordan. If the Canaanites were fearful and discouraged, the Israelites should be encouraged and invigorated. God uses the success against Sion and Og as history, we could say case studies, for what he would do for Israel when they crossed the river. Israel did not need to be highly, a highly skilled armed forces, not even marginally skilled. God would fight for them. There is no reason for us to believe that Israel's store, uh, soldiers had gone through any basic training, nor had they any advanced training. They hadn't been trained extensively. As a matter of fact, we're not even certain how many swords they had or javelins uh, or uh, shields, uh, possibly uh, slings. But we don't know how well they were trained, maybe not trained really at all. In fact, for the most part, Israel simply needed to appear on the battlefield and the opposition collapsed. Why? Because God placed the fear of Israel in their enemies. Third, God allowed Israel to possess or retain the land that they won as they defended themselves against the aggression of these other nations. You'll probably remember that Israel was traveling on the east side of the Dead Sea, um, coming, uh, skirting Edom and Moab, and then trying to position themselves on opposite of Jericho. Well, the uh, those nations that were there refuses to let Israel uh, pass through their nation. And they came out to attack them. And so Israel was not attacking these other nations, but they were defending themselves. While we know that the land east of the Jordan was in the mind of God for Israel to possess, the recon team had not traveled through Bashan or Gilead. And at least three nations east of the the Jordan were untouchable, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Furthermore, it does not appear that Moses was considering the land east of the Jordan for distribution. Uh, That's what we'll see or what we saw in Numbers when three of the the tribes made a request to stay on the, uh, the east side. We have this sense because he was resistant to the initial request of the three tribes who select selected land east of the Jordan. God had destroyed the pagan nations east of the Jordan as he will as he will do to the nations west of the Jordan, and that land would be repopulated with God's people. So these were pagan nations, both on the west side and even on the east side. And God is going to destroy those nations and they will be uh, available for repopulation by Israel, a nation that uh, believed in God.
Now, verse 12, uh, and this land which we possessed at that time from uh, Aror, which is by the river Arnon, and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. Now, here's Edom, here's Moab, and this is right beside the words Dead Sea is the Arnon River. And that's going to be the southern uh, boundary for Reuben. Uh, up where we see uh, Heshbon, uh, Beth, uh, Beth Por, uh, Peor, uh, this area is going to be the northern uh, boundary for Reuben and the southern bound for Gad. As we travel travel up through the area that says Gilead, there's another river there called the Jabbok, and it's going to be the northern bound of Gad and the southern bound of uh, the half of Manasseh. So this sort of gives an idea. This is going to be, you might say that seems like a rather small area, well, the area where Reuben's going to be is not huge. It's probably maybe about average for the plots that were given to the other tribes with the exception of Manassas, uh, Jude, Judah, and uh, Ephraim. But, uh, and, and we'll also see that the area of Gad is going to be rather small. But then when we come up here to the... Um, the northern portion of Gilead and Bashan, that's going to be a rather large area that is going to uh, half of uh, Manasseh. Verse 13, the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. And then we have this um, region, Argob, uh, says all the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. Uh, theologians uh, and historians are really not certain where Argob uh, uh, was located. But I believe, since it's uh, the text here tells us this, that it's probably the southern portion of Gilead. And that's where we can almost see, I think we've got this as a large, well, maybe we can get a little bit larger. No, I guess not. But this is the area where Jabesh Gilead is. And I think uh, that's this where this location is. All right. Uh, verse 14. Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob, as far as the border of the Jeshurites and the uh, Machithites, and called Bashan after his own name, Havoth Jair to this day. I also gave Gilead to Machir, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave from Gilead as far as the river Arnon. So he's going down from the north, going south. 
The middle of the river is the border as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the people of uh, Ammon. Now, Ammon, as you can see in the map I'm using, is to the uh, to the east of this area. Uh, the land that had belonged to Ammon that uh, went west to the Jordan had been taken from them by the uh, the Amorites. And so Ammon is more easterly at this point. Verse 16, and to the Reubenites and Gadouts, or did I just read that? And to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave uh, Gilead as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river as the border, as far as the river Jabbok, uh, the border of the people of Ammon. Ammon. Uh, verse 17, the plain also with Jordan as the border from Chinnereth, as far as the east side of the east of the Arabah. So the Arabah is the uh, the land in and around uh, the Dead Sea, but also south of it as well. Uh, and so the Arabah, it says, below the slopes of Pishkah. Now, that is uh, right near Heshbon and Beth Peor and Mount Nebo. That was the area of Pishkah. As a matter of fact, that's uh, the slopes there are part of Mount Nebo. All right. A couple points here. The Transjordan, the Transjordan was divided among the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and uh, the half-tribe of Manasseh. Reuben received the territory north of Moab. Here we are. Now, some people uh, wonder why we study the Bible and why this, or the map, and this is uh, uh, important. Well, the first answer is, because the Bible records it. And it's important for us to know, I believe, where this is so that we have a sense of uh, where Reuben and Gad and half Manasseh, where their location is and why they are there. So we see that Reuben received the territory north of Moab from the Arnon Gorge to Heshbon. Gad was given the southern half of Gilead from Heshbon to the Jabbok River. So these two uh, uh, tribes really seal the, uh, the Dead Sea area for Israel to the east. And then we'll see that Manasseh seals the eastern side of the uh, or we're being told that they're sealing the eastern side of not only uh, the northern portion of the Jordan, but also what we'll see in a moment is the Lake of Galilee. To, half, to the half-tribe of Manasseh went the northern part of Gilead and also Bashan, which was east of the Sea of Kinnereth, Later, of course, called the uh, the Lake of Galilee. Um, Jair was a descendant, a 
descendant of Manasseh and was singled out for special mention by God the Holy Spirit. Why? Because of his courage in capturing the whole region of the southern portion of Gilead. As a result, that area was named after him. Now, verse 18. Then I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel. Uh, We've seen in the past that uh, from numbers that this number was to be uh, 40,000. That certainly is not uh, the total of these three nations. Uh, as far as their um, men who qualified to fight for their tribe, Reuben, Gadden, and half of Manasseh. So there were some who had to remain back in the uh, in those areas. So all your men of valor shall cross over armed before your men, the children of Israel, verse 19. But your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall stay in your cities, which I have given you. 20. Until the Lord has given rest to your brethren as to you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan, then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. All right. Point one here, I would say, is that Numbers 32 records the request of two and one-half tribes for the Transjordan. Uh, Transjordan. Uh, and we studied this um, in, uh, in Numbers, Numbers 32. They had acquired a large number of cattle and sheep, and this reason, region was especially well-suited for raising cattle. Matter of fact, that was the specific request to Moses. Uh, this is wonderful grazing area, and this is where we would like to stay. At first, Moses was angry at their request, fearing another defection like that at Kadesh Barnea. But when the warriors of the tribes promised to cross over the Jordan and fight till all Israel had won her land, Moses granted their request. And you should remember that as we studied that. Since the time for battle was drawing near, the tribes east of the Jordan needed this reminder of their prior commitment. Uh, remember, this was something that we studied in Numbers uh, Numbers 32. And uh, as, uh, as Moses was speaking to this second generation, he needs to ensure that the second generation understands their responsibilities. Point five here, they could leave their new, their new homes and families without fear because the Lord had given them this land. God gave Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh this land east of uh, the Jordan, and God was going to protect them. And so they could send uh, their valiant men, as we read here. 
They could cross over the Jordan River and fight fearlessly for their brothers and then return to their families. And it took somewhere in the vicinity of seven to ten years. So uh, for those who periodically are deployed, uh, this was a deployment of, uh, of, of an extended time. Now, in you'll notice in verse 20 it says, until the Lord had given rest. And the word for rest here is nuach. It means rest as translated. It also means calm or even comfort. Um, it's the word uh, from which we draw the name Noah. Um, so we have rest or calm or comfort. Um, Noah was going to provide, uh, was going to build the uh, ark, and it could be called uh, a place of comfort. Now, the phrase, the Lord has given rest, verse 20, has a meaning that we encountered in Joshua. Joshua 21, 44. Hold your fingers here in Deuteronomy 3 and turn to Joshua Joshua 21, Joshua 21. We, when we studied Joshua, we covered this. Joshua 21, 44. Joshua 21, 44. After Joshua had the, sub, the central campaign, then the southern campaign, and then the northern campaign on the west side of the Jordan, we are told in Joshua, uh, beginning in verse 43, Joshua 21, verse 43. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Now, that tells us quite a bit. This means that Joshua had conquered this area. But what we must understand is that he didn't completely uh, remove all of the Canaanites that were in that area. But verse 44 says, The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. In other words, they had removed the re- the resistance that was there. But this does not mean that uh, every one of the Canaanites had been removed. So the rest here does not mean that there had been an eradication of all the Canaanites. This does not mean that there was no more work to be done, as we might surmise. Uh, we might think that um, they they could have rest. We might say, oh, okay, well, uh, guess all the work's done. You might say, um, or you might remember and even say, that on the seventh day God rested and it was de- uh, designated as a day of rest. However, that's a different word. That is Shavat. 
and it means to rest or to cease. However, even though we could say that God rested, it did not mean that God did nothing on the seventh day. You know, when we think about the seventh day, uh, that Israel was uh, required to, on which they were required to rest, they still had, uh, they still were able to do things that were necessary. So, God, uh, it's not, it doesn't mean that God did not do anything on the seventh day. Yes, creation was finished, but God did not turn and neglect his creation. We know that there was activity that required his attention, such as holding the universe in place, ensuring life persisted, dispatching angels to various parts of the universe. And that's just to mention a few of the responsibilities that God uh, uh, attended. Rest does not mean that for Israel there was not yet work to be done, such as removing the remaining Canaanites in various tribal areas. But for the most part, the areas of enemy concentration had been reduced. The major threats were destroyed. And so Joshua and now Moses uses that same phrase, he had given them rest. Again, I just want you to think, uh, not think, that it meant that there was absolutely no more resistance in the in the uh, in the land because there there was, and each one of the the tribal uh, units were to clear the rest of that land. Verse twenty one. And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. What God has done here, what God has done, he will do again. That's what we need to understand. Remember, God's faithfulness in the past. If we remember his faithfulness in the past, then his faithfulness is going to be encouragement to us because he will continue to be faithful to us. Verse 22, uh, we see that it says, you must not fear them, meaning the the Canaanites, their enemies. Uh, You must not fear them, for the Lord your God fights for you. Uh, We studied this uh, last week. What does it mean for God to fight for us. It means that um, when we trust him, it doesn't mean we're not going to have to go out to battle. We're not going to have to work. We're not going to have to face difficulties, adversities. But it means that God is in those details and he is going to fight for us. So these two verses, verse 21 and verse 22, are a transition from the distribution of the land um, from Moses' Moses's leadership to that of Joshua. Moses had reminded his audience that the time for the conquest of Canaan was near. Yet Joshua, not Moses, 
would lead the people in that conquest. Uh, this was a significant transition, uh, a transition of uh, leadership. Moses has led Israel for 40 years, and now Joshua is lined to replace him. By encouraging Joshua here, Moses himself was obeying God's command. Moses, uh, his firm assurance that God had acted like a a warrior for Israel in the past and would do so in the future, greatly encouraged Israel's future leader. We'll, We'll see, or we have seen in Joshua 1, that Joshua was not, um, probably didn't think he was ready. Um, and to lead Israel across the Jordan, how was he going to do that? Um, you'll, uh, you may remember that Joshua was simply told to move up to the, uh, the Jordan. He wasn't told how God was going to cross the Jordan River. Remember, uh, the Jordan River was at uh, at flood stage. How was he going to be able to cross this um, raging water? Well, he was simply told to put the Ark of God in front. And as the priest's feet touched the water, then God created a path for them to cross. So Joshua had to learn to uh, rely on God, to trust him. Joshua need not be afraid. Moses' words also represented a major theme in Deuteronomy. Uh, We saw this in the uh, historical prologue. The battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord your God will fight for you. All right. Now, moving to verse 23, and this is the last part of chapter 3, Moses being forbidden to enter the promised land. This is uh, a rather uh, curious paragraph, beginning in verse 23. Verse 23, we're back uh, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 23. Then I, Moses, pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant, meaning him, Moses, your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or earth who can do anything like your works or your mighty deeds? All right. A little bit of a prelude to this. In Moses' writings, he now reveals his petition for him, his petition for himself to enter the promised land. Moses now knows for certain that he will not enter the promised land. He had already been uh, told this, but that was 38 years ago. Joshua has not yet been commissioned. That's not going to happen until we arrive towards the end of Deuteronomy. 
So Joshua has not yet been commissioned to replace Moses. And it's possible that the second generation doesn't know Moses is not going to continue in his leadership position. So this is new information, I believe, to many of the second generation. Also, it has been 38 years since the striking of the rock at Kadesh Barnea. And Moses might be hoping for a change in God's mind. God could reverse his prohibition if he so desired. But in this situation, God illustrates the importance of obedience and his promises. So God had made a promise to Moses. You are not going to enter the promised land. Could God have changed that? Yes, he could have, but he doesn't. And that's what we see here in verse, we'll see in verses 25 and following. Verse 25 says, I pray, let me cross, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. Uh, this, I think, could be easily translated this wonderful hill country because he's uh, uh, he's been told he hasn't seen it but he's seen the area where Judah is going to be where Benjamin will be where uh, Ephraim is going to be and the area of uh, uh, of Manasseh so he's going to be told about that and that's what he's hoping Verse 26, but the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Um, What's interesting about this verse, this verse, but the Lord was angry with me on your account. If we were to compare what God told him in Numbers uh, we would see that it appears here that uh, Moses is blaming Israel for his failure to enter the land. But, and by the way, there have been theologians who surmise that there may have been some other events over these 38 years that truly sealed Moses' uh, prohibition for entering the land. I don't think that's true. I think that uh, Moses had demonstrated a lack of uh, faithfulness. Uh, His anger of uh, trusting the Lord uh, for his leadership for Israel. And so... He says, the Lord was angry with me on your account. The account was uh, they had refused to fight at Kadesh Barnea. And that was the account. And the Lord was angry with him because he didn't trust the Lord to simply do what he told him. And that was speak to the rock, not get angry and strike the rock. So... God had made it clear to Moses 
that he would not be permitted to enter the promised land because of his unbelief at the waters of Meribah. And that's what we saw. And that's when God is telling him, just simply speak to the rock. However, that was 38 years ago. In Moses' mind, a possibly turn of events was indicated, um, uh, could have been indicated had he approached God. And I think when we see, see it says, you have begun to show your servant your greatness. That may very well be an indication that Moses thought that there had been a change of uh, the Lord's mind. This probably refers, meaning uh, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness. This probably refers to the Lord's omnipotence uh, revealed in the conquest of Sion and Og, Transjordan's two Amorite kings, rather than to the events of the exodus from Egypt. Since God let Moses take part in conquering the Transjordan, he may have thought that the Lord intended to rescind his earlier prohibition about not entering Canaan. Therefore, this seems an opportune time for him to ask God about his going or entering into the land. So verse 26 says that God was angry. And we've studied the uh, anthropopathism of anger. God is not angry with Moses. God simply, uh, his righteousness and justice kicks in and we're told that his, um, God's uh, uh, prohibition was uh, established. It was solid. Verse 27. This is, uh, and by the way, I think enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Uh, the Lord may have at that point uh, continued to petition the Lord. Uh, and the Lord says, enough. Verse 27. Go up to the top of Pishkah. And lift your eyes towards the west, the north, the south, and the east. Remember, uh, the east around him now was going to be uh, land that was going to be given to Reuben, Gad, and <clears throat> uh, half the tribe of Manasseh. So go up to the top of Pishkah and lift your eyes towards the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. <clears throat> Verse 28. But command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. So here is the uh, the promise that... Uh, God is making to uh, uh, to Moses. You may remember that Moses asks for God to assign a, a new leader, and it's Joshua. And so Moses is told to encourage him and strengthen him. Why? Because 
uh, Joshua is now going to lead Israel without any assistance from Moses. He says, For he shall go over before this people, go over, over the Jordan, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. Verse 29, So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. This is uh, an interesting uh, conclusion of this uh, verse in verse 29. So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Now, Beth Peor is right here. Uh, let's see. Here we are. It's right here in the area uh, uh, across from Jericho. Beth Peor, uh, Shatim, Hezbon, this area. And that's where uh, Israel is going to stay for a while. And you'll remember that this is where they're going to be tempted. We saw that in Numbers. Um, Israel was tempted by the Midianites and they, uh, a, a large number of them uh, died in there because of their faith, faithlessness. All right. The... Uh, Sort of the last uh, uh, review here. God would not listen to Moses. That is, he would not grant his request. In fact, the Hebrew sentence implies that Moses had kept on asking God for permission and that God became uh, what we would probably call firmly established in his decision. This conversation reveals something of the intimacy of Moses' relationship with God. He was able to present his request over and over. And God finally answered him and said, that's it. No more conversation. It also heightens the feeling of tragedy in the experience of a man who devoted his life to fulfilling fulfilling God's promise for Israel but he knew he would never see its completion. But Moses could at least view the land from the peak of Mount Pishkah, also known as Mount uh, Mount Nebo. Since Moses could not lead the people across the Jordan, God reminded him of his responsibility to prepare Joshua for leadership. Joshua's succession to leadership is an important theme in Joshua in uh, Deuteronomy also. Not only God will fight for them, but now we are going to prepare Joshua for leadership. This is the third time it's been mentioned in only three chapters. We saw this in uh, chapter 1, verse 38. We also saw it in, uh, we'll see it in uh, uh, 138. Uh, we'll also see it we just saw it in 321, and, we'll, and we saw it again in 28. By merely repeating God's words on this subject to the people, Moses was encouraging Joshua and showing the people that Joshua was their next leader. Now, next week, uh, we're going to see uh, God's uh, exhortation through Moses to Israel to be obedient. And I think the lesson that we can take from this week 
is that if we remain faithful, the Lord will fight for you. We should be encouraged. God is your God. Um, There is only one God, but he loves uh, his creation. And he particularly loves those who believe in him, understand who he is and what he's doing for them. And so be encouraged for God is your God. Let's close our, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for uh, this remarkable passage. We're thankful for the intimacy that Moses had with you and the relationship he had with the Lord Jesus Christ, who more than likely was the mediator here that was speaking with uh, with Moses. We pray, Father, that in our lives we will remember that you are fighting for us. We're told in Romans 8.31 that um, uh, if God fights for us, if you fight for us, who can possibly stand against us? And we're told that we should trust in the Lord with all our heart, lean not unto our own understanding, and in our ways, and in all our ways, trust in you. Uh, you will direct our paths. We ask, Father, for your continued blessing upon us, um, this nation, and our nation, uh, this church and our nation. And, Father, we ask that uh, we will uh, continue to be uh, confident, courageous, and uh, that we'll be comforted by what you are doing for us each and every day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.